You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. chilly day outside. I'd like to you know, take a quick second and just thank Jennifer and Maria for helping set us up here. And without any further ado, I'm going to jump, jump into the talk. So as you can tell from the, the title and maybe from the, you know, the flyer that was around, you know, I'm talking <coughs> about the civil war that took place in Bosnia from 1992 to 1995. I'm talking about the change in ethnic relations that happened after it. The picture you see over here on the left-hand side is from a partisan cemetery, right? For anyone like me who is old enough to remember the former Yugoslavia, you know, our visions of the world used to be a lot different than in discussing the Balkans now. The idea was that, that Yugoslavia was a place brought together, perhaps based on imaginary, imagined identities, but a place where, where people of a variety of different, different group identities managed to get, get along. I think, you know, just looking at the present though, we find some puzzles when thinking about sort of the, the post-war in Bosnia. So over here on the, your um, left. Can somebody douse the lights? Why don't we bring down some of the... Yeah, that might help too. So over here on the left is a picture taken in, in a small town in central, central Bosnia. What it is for is it's the private Croatian-Bosnian club, the social club, or the Bosniak-Croat social club written both ways to give a sense of welcoming to each. Okay. It's very much like a, you know, sort of a stereotypical man cave, right? The <laughs> owner of this, this garage is a man. It has sort of 1980s action heroes. It has pinups. It has, has various, you know, the local soccer team hung on the wall, right? This is not something that was built with OSCE money. This is not something that was created by peacekeepers. This is something that somebody in the town took upon themselves to do, and I think is indicative of, of social relations. Over here on your right, is a somewhat different you know, monument that is put in without OSCE money, without the effort of peacekeepers. What it is, is it is a, a memorial plaque for eight children who were killed by a grenade. The notation on the plaque is, much, is too small to read, but you know, what it says is it's for eight children killed by a Muslim grenade. And the use the, the, of the, the word Muslim is not the sense that it was thrown by a Muslim or it was by Muslim forces, but in the sense that the grenade itself, you know, undertook, you know, aspired to undertake the Hajj and sat with the other five pillars of Islam. I think this gives us a sense of a puzzle. Why is it in some towns 
after war, we end up with fairly good intergroup relations. Well, on others, what we have is a memorial to a past that explicitly marks out another, right? This leads to, to my research question, which is under what conditions does civil war violence lead to polarization of ethnic identities, right? And this matters a lot, I will argue. I think that it's very important for understanding after conflict what peacekeepers are supposed to do. There's a long debate in the literature between, you know, sort of, you know, consociationalists, best, best thought of, you know, probably best thought of using Leibhardt's writing, arguing about the importance of, of giving set-asides and taking into account ethnic identities. There's also a, a different set of views which argue that the best way to deal with potential ethnic conflict is to try and, and to legislate out, use constitutional design to get rid of them associated with Horowitz, right? The second is that it's important in explaining what happens for post-war institutionalized politics. Certainly for anybody who follows Bosnian politics after the war, ethnicity is a defining feature of, of understanding elections and certainly for understanding social relations writ large. Lastly, while it's not the case in Bosnia that we've seen, seen future, you know, seen conflict reoccur, these kind of setups where there's a strong sense of group identity are a potential, potential source of, of, of flammable material that create, create a fire in the future, right? The upshot is this matters because of that little girl between the two peacekeepers, that what she will grow up to, to be and how her life will work out depends very much on the way that, that things were set during wartime. Right? For the plan for the rest of the talk, I'm gonna quickly clarify terms. I'm going to present theories about why we see this kind of change after, after wartime. I'm going to explain a little bit about the case selection and about some of the methods that I use. I'll then introduce some qualitative evidence based on six months of field work in Bosnia, some quantitative evidence which is largely based on electoral returns, and then I will conclude. So to, as a first step in thinking about this is trying to unpack a little bit what we mean by ethnicity and what we mean by identities. So by identities, I take this to mean any social category where an individual qualifies for membership. Right? From most constructivist thought, we're eligible for membership in multiple categories. An example given by Hobsbawm is by somebody who's waiting in a passport line, Mr. Patel. Mr. Patel has a linguistic identity, he has an ide a regional identity in, in India, and in Britain he has a, an identity as an Indian immigrant. The choices of identities that we present to others are a mix of social and material incentives. <clears throat> One subset of identities of which ethnicity is a part is what we call descent-based identities. So we have many, many different types of, of groups that we might categorize ourselves along. We might you think of things like, like political identities. We might think of professional attributes in which is a social group which we are a part, part of or eligible for being a part of. Descent-based identities are those where we would normally assume that a full sibling would also qualify for, for membership. This is, again, socially constructed. I'm not going to claim that it is hard and fast around the world, but we can think of things, for example, like race, where one would assume that if one sibling was eligible for membership in a specific race, the other full sibling would as well. Ethnicity is one of these descent-based identities, largely marked by the idea of, of an imagined kin. <coughs> In terms of polarization, I think there are a number of different ways to, to approach the, the idea. And what I'm trying to get at here is the idea that when you see ethnic polarization, 
you see that there is consistency of content within a group, and then there is a distance between groups. So we can think of, of some different ways to restate this. It's where one, an individual consistently identifies with one of their potentially multiple identities. So if you were eligible you know, for a racial identity, an ethnic identity, a professional identity, you'd always introduce yourself first based on the ethnic identity. It's a case where group behavior is seen, or group membership is seen largely to explain group behavior, individual behavior. So somebody does that because they are a Croat, somebody does that because they are a Bosniak, somebody does that because they are Japanese, somebody does that because they are Chinese. And it's a case where the group values are consistent <coughs> and widely conformed to. But the kind of contestation that we normally associate with most of our identities ends up being sort of narrowed down. So we can think of, of a lot of, of cases where individuals might say that they do something because of a specific identity. Because I am Irish and was discriminated against in the past, it is my responsibility to try and, and open the door for others. You might imagine somebody who takes the opposite and says, I'm Irish, we were discriminated against in the past, but we managed to overcome and achieve. I don't see what the problem is. The idea is that where you end up with a consistency of that identity and you end up with very little contestation of what it means to be that identity, you are seeing polarization. And then the last part is where there's a clear in-group, out-group bias, where our behavior to people within the group is largely altruistic, and our behavior to people outside the group is not. <coughs> there, I'm not the first person to think that violence, and especially civil war violence, leads to changes in group identities. There are, I think, three main schools of thought, and I think that there are some shortcomings with each of them. So the first argument is that it's simply instrumental, that this is about alliances, that individuals, either at the local level to, to pursue power, end up striking deals with people at a much higher level, politicians at an elite level, and they end up declaring themselves you know, part of the Croat side or part of the communist side to carry out local, local, <coughs> local rivalries and to give, them, give themselves an edge up. But I think these, these sort of theories fail to explain the amount of often sticky nature that we see about these types of identities. It doesn't explain why these cleavages would persist in some cases. The idea that you know, for electoral advantage, it might be worthwhile for me to align with Croats doesn't explain why somebody will go and knock over gravestones. Right? That's not something that, that's necessarily required and seems to have get at the emotive nature of this. A second set of theories argues that it's about the security dilemma. That in a civil war, the state falls apart. People are left to themselves to find and ensure their own security. And the idea is that the ethnic group is something that is sort of a way for them to, to secure themselves. I think this fails to explain when we see variation within the case. If we look back, remember, to the first, first two pictures, right? it's not going to be able to explain why one village went one way and why one village went another. It also comes with some very primordial assumptions about which identities are important to us. If we think of anarchy as sort of a Hobbesian world of war of one against all, there's no reason why I should particularly trust anybody from any ethnic background versus only trusting in myself. The last is that it, it's largely motivated by psychological, psychological drivers, and that in particular it's about status reversal. That is, in some societies, some groups are seen as being ranked. So to be part of a superior group confers on it certain benefits. In a, a case where things change, 
politically, especially you can imagine during civil war, in which a previous subordinate group is suddenly claiming political power, may end up in political power, the idea is that this is going to particularly lead to a hardening of identity in the previously superior group. <clears throat> right? Again, I think this fails to explain the variation we see in the, the first two pictures. And I think that you know, in some cases, it doesn't explain very well, at, well what's going on. So Bosnia is, is largely seen as being a case where prior to the war, there was not a strong ranking or a strong hierarchy of, of, of ethnic identities. My, my theory is going to emphasize differences in what goes on during war. Most of the previous three, three, three theories tend to sort of assume that the wartime violence or the, the, the condition of wartime is uniform across a polity, that's uniform across what used to be a state. Right? I think that this is missing something. So most civil wars have a multiplicity of actors. If we think of something, you know, if we think about the current war in the Ukraine, while it is true that we can perhaps divide people into two sides, there are a number of different groups, right? There are state armed forces, there are paramilitaries, there are sort of freelance groups out there, right? And this is a very common nature of, of most conflicts. If we think about Syria, if we think about Iraq, if we think about a number of, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, a number of, of, of civil wars, they have a multiplicity of actors in them. And each of these armed organizations is liable to do things differently. They're liable to have their own repertoire of violent activities. To use, you know, a different part, to use Elizabeth Wood's manner of saying it, they vary in what they do to whom, how often, and why. And I think that the variation among arms groups is an important story in explaining why we see variation in politics after the war. For this talk, I'm going to emphasize on one part of this repertoire, the why, right? We can think that it's a, a matter of frequency, how many victims that an armed organization ends up, ends up victimizing. We could think that it's about how, that some types of violence are so beyond the norm that they lead to a very strong and emotive reaction. But I'm going to focus on targeting. And targeting is the purpose of way that armed groups or armed organizations choose their victims. And I argue that it, it varies on two dimensions. The first is on specificity. That is, is it the case that the armed organization is looking for a particular type of victim, or is it the case that they use, use violence with very little care about who ends up being victimized? We can think of this as the difference between something like a police state in which a dossier is compiled on an individual and only that specific individual is meant to be punished versus something which is, is verging towards random. So the use of, of, say, a minefield or the use of a bomb in which people who were not the intended target may end up becoming the victims. Interacting with specificity, I think, are the criteria. And this is, is really the why. And I argue that there are two different ways that armed groups go about choosing their victims, two different criteria they use. The first, behavioral, is a story about rule breaking. This is a story about violence as a, de a deterrence mechanism. It's a story about an armed organization that lays down some rules and says, if we find you not following these rules, we will punish you. The second is categorical. That is that an armed organization can be specific in who it chooses to victimize. But instead of looking at their behavior, it looks at their identity. And the idea with categorical violence is that in its extreme notion, we can think of it as being, a being destructive. That is, 
it's the case of, of genocide is, I think, the utmost of what we would see in where you have a categorical criteria in the use of violence. That is, that you are trying to eliminate a specific group. Right? Not all of, all, all cases of collective targeting are like this. Not all cases of categorical targeting are like this. So a fairly common one that occurs is sort of checkpoint targeting. So looking at somebody's ID card, looking to see what the last name is and what that group membership implies. Right? I think that the interaction of the criteria and the specificity lead to three separate types of, of targeting. First, there is selective. That is where an armed organization is looking for very specific rule breakers, and that it is very careful that only to punish them. There is collective, in which an armed organization is looking for people from a specific group or who conform to a specific identity and only punish them. And then there is indiscriminate, which is where an armed organization uses very little, little, little specificity and no criteria to try and figure out who they're going to victimize. This may seem counterintuitive that there would be such a thing as, as indiscriminate violence. We think normally of, of political actors and of armed actors as being strategic. Right? One of the arguments for why we often see indiscriminate violence is either as a function of the technology of warfare. As I said before, you know, a bomb is, is more likely to, to hit unintended victims than would something, something more personal. Some of it is about the organization of groups themselves. So in Colombia, commanders promised soldiers that if they managed to kill X number of insurgents, they would get leave. Somewhat unsurprisingly, soldiers went out quickly, found 12 people, killed them, and then went on leave. Right? It's not the case that they went out and found insurgents. It's that the industrial organization, the way that the principal monitored and incentivized the actors, led to a very, very bad outcome. So I'm not claiming that these are, are completely, the, the world has a, a big black and white line down the middle like my slide. In some cases, they're going to be quite clear. So we can, you know, again, to use the, the analogy of the police state, which compiles dossiers based on denunciation, based on wiretaps, like the Stasi, that would fall into selective. Collective, we can think of, of either a case. So a normal, normal standard case would be something like, a, like an armed militia. You know, to think of, 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 the, of Iraq or to think of Lebanon, a case where our victims are, are selected based on identity cards or based about something, some visible attribute of identity. And lastly, an indiscriminate we end up with cases <coughs> that, are, that are based in almost entirely at random. Again, this may seem counterintuitive, but we can think of things like Russian shelling in Chechnya or the US, US use of violence in free fire zones in South Vietnam as being cases where your odds of being safe or your odds of being a victim are largely a, a, a function of luck. I think that these different targeting Targeting strategies lead to polarization through three distinct pathways or processes that I will, will lay out here. The first is through psychological pathways. And thinking about social psychology, whether it's social identity theory, normally associated with Taj Bell and Turner, or whether thinking about realistic group conflict theory associated with Sh Sharif, I think that the expectation is that violence is going to lead to, to certain, the, the difference in the targeting strategy will lead to a difference in outcome. In cases of collective targeting, what we do is we prime a group identity. That is, people think about the their group identity. In social identity theory, this is likely to lead to categorization, then comparison, then discrimination. In realistic group conflict theory, it is somewhat more straightforward. 
that it accentuates a zero-sum game and then again leads to a strong division based on this group identity. In the other two cases, I think that the targeting strategy is less likely to, to lead to this outcome. In indiscriminate, the reason for being a victim is largely, largely luck, which is unlikely to prime these, these pathways. In selective, it's largely to be based on individual behavior, which again should prime neither of these pathways. The second is the socialization processes associated with civil war. Right? During civil war, individuals face different incentives for dealing with, with armed organizations. If there is a group that uses selective targeting, there is a strong incentive for an individual to collaborate. That is, since you are liable to be victimized only if you are caught breaking the rules, if you follow the rules, you will be safe. That is likely to lead you to, to collaborate with that armed group. In collective violence, you are safest in a place where the armed organization is looking for somebody from another group identity. And that means that you are likely to move and to find a different armed organization, or find a place which is controlled by an armed organization, which likely, is li likely matches your identity. Lastly, in indiscriminate violence, there's very little sense of what you would do to keep you safe from an, an armed organization. Right? When you collaborate with a, an armed group, I believe this is likely to, to lead to certain processes of military socialization. Normally, when we think of this, sort of the headline example would be something like a boot camp. I don't think that that's, that's necessarily what happens. I think that in many cases, even small acts end up leading to be socialized into the, the goals and to the interests of the group. So if I think particularly about Sarah Parkinson's work looking at, at, at Palestinian organizations, there are many people who end up collaborating who don't fight. They do small things. They provide money. They provide, provide help to others they may, may end up carrying small favors for the organization. But my argument here is that you end up with different incentives based on which targeting strategy you're in, whether to collaborate or not with an armed group, and that your, your process of collaborating with this armed group is likely to, at least at some level, some minimal level, socialize you to follow the, arm, the goals and edicts of that armed organization. And the final pathway, I would say, is discursive, which is, the kind of actions that are taken out by, an, that an armed organization undertakes are things that people are going to talk about. People are going, who were not there are going to tell others. In the process of telling, in the process of, of gossiping, and then later on in the process of, of the way that the town remembers the event, these are going to, going to be turned into, into strong stories which even people who are not present end up internalizing as the way that the armed organization acts and potentially another group acts. Right? This, this sign here for this sign here says that on the night of August 25th and 26th in 1992 that Serb criminals set fire to the National University Library of Bosnia right It says remember the idea is that the way that armed organizations the different ways that armed organizations carry out their violent target people for violence is likely likely to lead to these kind of of focal points for the future. And I think this leads to, to two testable propositions. First, in communities where violence was targeted collectively, we should see polarization along ethnic lines. Here, in the case of Bosnia, where the, collect, the collective identity being targeted is ethnic. In communities where violence was targeted indiscriminately or selectively, we should see little polarization along ethnic lines. The alternative explanations for the security dilemma school 
they would expect that we should see polarization largely uniform, and where it's not, it should be based on, on a weakness in local security. For those thinking about psychological status, the polarization should again be consistent across the communities that I, I bring up, with the idea that the ranking of social groups would have been consistent across Bosnia. And for theories that stress alliance, then polarization should change based on differences in, in elite and local agreements. To try and, and, and measure this, I'm going to look at, at three main, main sets of, of, <coughs> of evidence. I'm going to look at political indicators. I don't think that this shows everything we want to know about how an individual identifies. But I do believe that in a case like Bosnia, where people are allowed to, to cast a secret ballot, that the party they cast their vote for gives some sense about how they see themselves, whether they vote for a multi-ethnic party or whether they vote for a party of their own ethnicity. I look at a wider set of social indicators. So the integration or segregation of your residences, of workplace, of the social organizations, and then ties like intermarriage and friendship. And then lastly, I look at, at sort of indicators that come up in, in discourses. You know, how people describe groups, whether they use slurs against an outgroup, the way that they describe somebody's motivation for behavior. For the case itself, I'm looking at central Bosnia. So I think we're all fairly familiar with the, the wider war and with the sense that it often comes up that the war in Bosnia was a case of Serbian forces against Bosniak, the way that I describe Bosnian Muslims, and Croat forces. However, in central Bosnia, the world is a, a little, little busier. So for approximately the first year and a half of the war, Croats and Bosniaks were allied together Fighting, fighting mostly Serb forces. In 1993 to 1994, they fought each other as well as the Serbs, sometimes aligning with the Serbs on a local level. And then from 1994 to 1995, after US intervention and, and, and diplomacy, the Bosniaks and the Croats again aligned to fight against the Serbs. It is, I think, a less studied part of the overall war. I think that most of the, the works we see tend to focus on Bosniak and Serbian relations. But I think it's, it's critical, a critical part of, of what is a critical case. Almost all theories that try and explain the, growth, the import, growth and the importance of ethnic identity after civil war look at Bosnia. And it's certainly a case in terms of central Bosnia that allows for the la a lot of latitude for the other theories. That is, there are changes in alliances. There is a sense of people being up and people being down. And there is a change in how people's security situation occurs going through the war. I'm going to go ahead and pre present some qualitative evidence. It's based on, on the field work, which I did. What I did was I used pre-war demographic information to match villages in central Bosnia. I then ended up finding the, taking that information, comparing it to a secondary sources on describing violence within a community. And then I, I broke it down into villages that were very much alike before the war but which saw different types of targeting throughout. So one of them was selective, one of them was indiscriminate, and then two were collective. The reason being that collective is the most common in Bosnia, and also because the, in one of the collective villages, the ethnic composition changed a lot from the start to the end. The idea is to have, have both in there to make sure that it's not something about the change in ethnic composition through the war that leads to the results we see. In each of these, I did life history interviews. So a life history interview asked people to answer the same questions going year after year through the, the, 
through their lives. The idea is to, to anchor them in something, like do you remember where you were during the Winter Olympics in 1984? And then keep stepping forward. So this was the year that you were married. This was the year that you had your first son. Trying to avoid political prompts. The idea is that by going through this, we can see change over time, where in a, in a straight up open-ended interview, people may simply tell a narrative which gives little chance for you to be able to interject and to find how their life has changed. I use some other sources to try and triangulate these, inter these interview information. So I have information on electoral returns from the, 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 the National Gazette. I have fairly precise information on where people were killed and how many people were killed based on a post-war accounting project called the, you know, here the Bosnian Book of the Dead, sometimes by the, the, the less, less exciting name of human casualties in the, the Bosnian War. And then I have the ability to use the International Criminal Tribunal on Yugoslavia and other secondary sources to look at testimonies given and information that took place during the war. This is just to give a, a quick sense of the, the match of the different communities. I'm going to refer to them each by the first letter of the municipality they lie in. Right? They're all similar in terms of having both a Catholic and, and Bosniak community before the war. They were all, none of them had a police station, which implies that, that the management of security was largely taken care of by the, the individuals themselves. And they each had an elementary school. Right? This basically indicates that they are all roughly the same size and the composition in terms of the age, <coughs> the age composition of the village was roughly, roughly similar. In the first community, what I refer to as Community K, during wartime, violence was targeted largely selectively. What do I mean by violence was targeted selectively? First, in terms of the, the information that I was able to find through ICTI testimony and through secondary sources, there's <coughs> evidence given by the, the chain of command of the army of the Bosnian Herzegovina, the Bosniak Armed Forces, that they replaced a commander very early on and, and, and ordered their troops to make sure that they did not kill people based on identity. In talking with people in, in, the, in the, the town itself, this was something that, that they, they saw. So one individual remembered the way that the local, command, the local Bosniak commander, the individual is a Croat, remembered the, the Bosniak commander making sure that his, his soldiers signed for things. That is, they didn't just take things from, from the local Croat, Croat population. People do remember an incident that occurred before the change of command in which individuals were herded into a cafe and threatened. But an order came down from the chain of command of the army of Bosnia and Herzegovina that said, do not do that. Let them all go. So the idea being here that violence is largely predicated on breaking the rules rather than on your identity. In terms of the, the way that the community K functioned post-war, <coughs> there's still a number of the, the civil society organizations that were there before. Right, time has, has sapped some of them. So this town itself has seen a large amount of out-migration given changes in the, the local economy. Before the war, the main employer was a cement factory where Bosniaks and Croats used to work intermingled. When, in the interviews that I did, most individuals remembered working with somebody from a different ethnicity. People remembered things like Bosniak children partaking in Catholic religious courses at, at the school, which is you know, very different than it is now. <coughs> In terms of, of friendship ties, many people reported that their best friend before the war was somebody from an, another group. It's not that they were blind to, to group identities. There was no group identities in, in Community K before the war. 
It's that these were largely orthogonal to the way that they lived their lives. Right? The violence itself, as I said, was, was largely selective. I don't want to underplay it. The, the, if you remember the, the first two pictures we saw, the one on the left where there's the social club, the person who put together that club lost his son-in-law to the, to the Bosnian forces. He's Croat. And he was able to, to move past that. Um, there was certainly you know, one individual I interviewed remembered somebody coming to knock on, on their door late at night, asking for her husband by name and taking him away. Again, this is not a case where no violence occurred, but it's a case where violence is controlled and is set by, by, by breaking rules. <clears throat> After the war, people, these are two of the, the, the quotes that come out. The names themselves are not Bosniak. Everybody was given a pseudonym based on the, the most common 200 US names in 2006 for their own anonymity. But the, the, the first quote, when I see the checkerboard, the Croat flag, the checkerboard is Croatian. That's not my flag, you know. My flag is here. You know, this one in the park flapping and points over across a graveyard at a Bosnian flag fluttering in the wind. It's a Bosnian flag, and that's my flag, whether they wanted me or not. <coughs> this individual is Croat. This individual goes to church on a regular basis. This individual was part of the, the Croat defense militia for this town before the Bosniak troops came in. Right? The second one is from another individual who had previously been active in the HDZ, the, the largely Croat ethnic party before the war. And he's describing a seaside tri trip he took a couple years ago. He said he met somebody else who was a Croat. And when I told him I stayed in K, this other person said, why do you stay with slur for Muslims? This individual said, you know, I thought to myself, why would I stay with you? Why would I stay with, with the Croats? You know, outside people have different thoughts, where in here things are basically all right. Stepping from Community K, which was the case of selective targeting, I'm going to present you with some evidence from Community F. In Community F, again, the pre-war was very much a case where group identities were recognized, but were not all that important. The central focal point in town was a soccer team, which was integrated. The central part of most of the social life was this building, which was the old Miners Union Hall, which again was a, a case of, of people who worked on cross-ethnic themes. <clears throat> During wartime, what happened in Community F was that the Bosniak and the Croat forces largely, largely fought using indiscriminate weaponry. What do I mean by that? I mean that they used long-range shelling, and that I mean that they used, used heavy machine gun fire at a distance. They did not check, stop and check targets. Both the local, local church and local mosque asked and tried to remove move non-combatants from the valley. So the sense here is that this is a place where your, your chance of becoming a victim is largely based on bad luck. It's based on the, the trajectory of a bullet or the trajectory of a shell that did not necessarily understand who you were as a civilian. Post-war, some things have changed in Community F. So the mining industry also fell away in the same way that the cement industry fell away in Community K. People are less integrated in terms of what they do for work. <coughs> However, we still see that, that people take part in some of their, their pre-war social activities. They're largely not a part of, of, of social, so civil society organizations. There is a, one active organization here, which is a women's organization, which is based not on ethnicity, but based on gender as its organizing principle. And then individuals have this to say about their relations in Community F. So the first one from a woman describing the way that, that things were after the war. They drank coffee with people whom they fought. If they were friends before the war, they were friends after the war. 
Another in individual says, they call it a homeland, a homeland war, that this was a dirty war. How will I, trying to find the words, we have in our town Muslims. We have in neighboring village Muslims of several families. Then we have name of a Bosniak, name of a Bosniak. My father never hated one. I, I was the same myself and I remain today. And so everything was fine post-war without hatred. <clears throat> well, the last two cases have been about indiscriminate and about selective violence. I'm going to talk a little bit about communities T and B about collective violence. So communities T and B are both in the Lashva Valley in central Bosnia. The description given by one outside, outside historian trying to describe the, the nature of conflict between Croats and Bosniaks in the Lashva Valley was that it was, quote, freelance ethnic cleansing. Uh, from a contemporaneous report from a, a UN peacekeeper who was observing the area, Bosniak forces cleared a Croat town with ethnic cleansing and a lot of burning. Right? A different, different observer from the Dutch army notes that it's not one-sided, that again, it's the case that, that both sides are, are involved. Right? This right here is a, a memorial which occupies a prominent hillside location outside of, of Community T. This group right here, the Yokeri, the Vuenya Policia, the military police Yokers, was indicted for war crimes. They're well recognized as being an armed organization that differed from the rest of the HVO in the way that they carried out violence in this area. Similarly, on the Bosniak side, while in the other two communities, the, or the, the military units responsible were sort of numbered brigades, the kind of things that you'd expect if you looked at the US or if you looked at the Russian army, in here, the Bosniak forces with the 7th Muslim Brigade. No other brigade in the Bosniak army used the, used the honorific Muslim. Right? Again, this is different types of armed organizations carrying out violence in a different way than in the other communities we saw. Pre-war in both of these communities, in the people that I talked with, while they were not majority communist, I found more people who had been ex-communist party members in TNV. Somebody describing the, the life before, before the war you know, fondly recalled watching MTV. It's very sort of 80s, but they remembered Tina Turner and Mick Jagger. Another one remembered being part of an integrated mountaineering, mountaineering club that would go out hiking. Uh, a history that was written about this area before the war talks about the various integrated civil society organizations, judo clubs, basketball clubs, outdoor stuff, hunting, hunting or societies. This is not the case now. So in some sense, if I were to look at this numerically, TNV would be, be a very positive sign because they show a doubling of the number of civil society organizations. That is not the case. The judo club is now the Bosnian judo club and the Croat judo club. The karate club is the Bosnian karate club and then the, the Croat karate club. For the mountaineers, there is one lodge on one side of the valley, which is the one that is associated with the Croats, and another one on the other side of the valley that's associated with the Bosniaks. In terms of describing the, the way that their, their lives go, one individual's talking about their town. Muslims still shade their eyes when walking through town, and the Catholics, when they go through the Muslim side, as they are still ashamed, giving a sense of this strong residential segregation and the difference between the two groups. The second is from a teacher. The post-war in Bosnia ended up with something called once two schools, one roof. That is, one school building would have separate classes for people of, of different, different ethnic identities. This individual is a teacher and is a, is a Croat teacher. Neither the Croat teachers nor the Bosniak teachers were getting paid. 
Alex had the, the temerity to talk with some of her friends in the Croat Teachers Union and say maybe they should, should get together with the Bosniak Teachers Union <clears throat> and try and work together to get paid. Her response in terms of, of what her colleagues said, they called me a traitor. I don't understand how HDZ, the Croat Nationalist Political Party, has been in a coalition government with these people for the last 10 years, and I'm the traitor for having suggested that they work together. The last interview <coughs> again comes from a teacher trying to describe about why the, one, the two schools with one roof. Right? She had gotten a degree in linguistics. So prior to the war, the way that most people referred to the language was Serbo-Croat. The idea being that the Serb part was written with the Cyrillic alphabet, the Croat part with Latinic. And that, that was the difference, was really the alphabets. You know, she was trying to describe why it is now that Bosniak school children take Bosnian language and the Croat school ch children take Croat. Her comment, it wasn't nationality or language, just about preserving the identities. During the war, people would be killed over an identity, and so now they want a way to preserve that. Okay. <clears throat> the past three, three slides is a very, very quick summary of a lot of field work. It's, it's hard to summarize qualitative information quickly. But what I want to try and do is I want to try and, and say that these findings are generalizable to the rest of Bosnia from these, these four villages. <coughs> what this shows here on the, the x-axis, it shows the number of fatalities during the war based on the, the, the municipal population before the war. On the y-axis, it's a change in the percentage of vote that went to ethnic parties between the 1990 and then the 1997 elections. <coughs> As you can see, so sort of writ large, there isn't a real sense of, of any pattern. You could almost draw a bell curve that would go like that. But using the coding of another scholar, Dulic, who went through primary source documents from Croat, from Bosniak, and from Serbian, Serbian political leadership, looking at which municipalities leadership ordered ethnic cleansing in, I coded <coughs> these based on whether it was collective, that is whether it was ordered to be ethnically cleansed, or whether the violence was not ordered to be ethnically cleansed. And here we see a, a different pattern. Right? The black dots are the collective, the hollow dots are the non-collective, and we can see that the black dots all congregate towards both higher fatalities and then particularly to the higher level of ethnic voting. If I just organize that a, a little bit differently, looking at the ethnic vote share, what we see is in, in communities, or excuse me, in municipalities, roughly equivalent in size to an American county, where violence was not ordered to be carried out as ethnic cleansing, we see no significant change from the 1990 to the 1997 elections. In those where violence was done collectively, we do see a significant change. Right. To give you sort of a, a quick wrap up, since I know I'm running a little bit over time, <coughs> What I'd like you to take away from this are probably four things. First, I believe that the, the evidence here shows that ethnic polarization after conflict, after a civil war, even in a, a, what is largely seen as a headline case of ethnic conflict, is not uniform. That is, because there was a civil war between people of two different, different ethnic identities, we need not see that, that all communities will be affected in the same way. The second is that this is a hoop test. What a hoop test is, is that I think that it's important that my argument manages to satis satisfy and to give an explanation for what happens, but it's not critically disconfirming the other theories out here. 
The third point is that most violence in Bosnia was collective, and collective legacies predominate. I don't want you to think that Bosnia is split into four different equally si or three different equally sized sets of towns. Nearly all, all of the violence in Bosnia carried out was carried out based on, on ethnicity, and those are the, the kind of effects that I think predominate afterwards. And then the last one is that I'm not making any normative judgments about the targeting of violence. Somebody who uses a selective, selective violence strategy can be just as lethal, just as immoral as somebody who carries out ethnic cleansing. I think that's a, a, a conflict for ethicists, but I want to make it clear that this is not a talk that endorses the selective use of state terror as a good thing. On that cheery note, <laughs> I'll wrap up and I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you very much. subsumed uh, prior to the end of the Cold War. Um, was that due to the fact that there was a fear of an external, a greater common enemy, specifically the Soviet Union, and that was sufficient to, uh, to alleviate the problem of ethnic tensions rising within Yugoslavia? Well, Yugoslavia as a whole, I, I have some limited thoughts on, but certainly in the, in the Bosnian case, I can say that <clears throat> that some of it is is a case of a much of a much more organized communist party. So certainly, you know, Yugoslavia is normally thought of as sort of the nice communists. Yep. But the UDBA, their secret police, were not all that nice. And certainly under under Tito, one of their their big charges was to keep certain kind of manifestations of ethnic supremacy under wraps. Uh, <clears throat> there are, I think, two or three other pieces. One is is the weakness of the, of the communist state afterwards. So. It's not just that communism falls, falls, falls away in terms of the, the Soviet Union as a potential threat to Yugoslavia. It's also a story of the, Yugoslavia, the Yugoslav economy starts falling apart. And some of that is, is aided and abetted by the same characters who later on end up becoming the nationalists. But it, is, it certainly is, is, a, is something that allows people to, to claim other reasons being why or what should happen or giving a different, different story for what the state should do. I think the last, and this is something that, that interested me when talking with, with a lot of the interviewees, is that while they voted for, for ethnic, ethnic parties in the 1990 elections, their vision was that it would turn out to be something like Switzerland, that it would be sort of cantonized and things would work out. Um, the individual who talked about, you know, about the person who used the ethnic slur in Croatia, you know, he had a VHS tape of a rally that was held in, in 1990, an election rally, in which there is a Bosniak representative from the SDA, the, the Democratic Action Party, largely seen as the biggest Bosniak party. There's a representative from the HDZ, and they've got their flags sitting there together. There's an empty chair for the, the Serbian, Serbian representative who they in, in, invited. So the nationalists sometimes naively thought that, that, they, that this would not be the outcome. They did not necessarily see it going this way. Some certainly did. I mean, Milosevic had a plan. Right, I'm not saying that, that Milosevic did not have a plan for this or Tujaman, but that I think a lot of the, 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 the growth in, in ethnic identity was not necessarily a plan. People did not think it would lead to this. Just a quick follow-up. Um, was part of the economic decline due to the fact that uh, Slovenia was able to break off so cleanly and to 
completely in the beginning? Uh, no, so this is it's largely late 80s. So this is a problem of international banks asking for, for loans due. This is a problem of, of, of inflation starting to run, run out of control. And then um, one, one thing that certainly in the Bosnian context comes up is the, the failure of agrocommerce. So uh, you know a large sort of state-supported enterprise that ends up turning out to be a deck of cards and the money disappears. So I use the use the term Bosniak. It, the definition. Well, Bosnia, of, I mean, Bosnia had by since uh, I mean before World War II was an intermingled population of Serbians, Croats. No. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I, I should should be be clear about that. I think think maybe I've 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 not not clarified that. So when I say Bosniak, what I mean is is somebody of who sees himself as a constituent part, but is Muslim. So in 1972, was the, the Muslim citizens of Bosnia were given, and this is where the language gets, gets slippery in, in Yugoslavia, were, were given the, the designation of a separate nationality, which to me, I would, would call an, an eth, eth, ethnicity in this case. I think that the, the definition is, is slippery, though. Croats are largely Catholic, Serbs are Orthodox. Serbs are Orthodox. Yeah. So really, if you want to be honest and consistent in terms of the landscape, you, this would have been described during the Yugoslavia period as part of an ethnic conflict, but it's a religious conflict. It's a conflict between Catholic, Orthodox, and Muslim. And if one looks at it honestly that way, one could say that that I, I mean, I would, would say, it, I would say that you know, one, you know, not not to, to to quibble too much, but I would say that I think that what's important here is that while the the religions differ between the groups, and that one can see the difference that way, that it's more important as being a factor in in how they see themselves as as their myth of common descent, and that the reasons why they fought had much less to do with with any sort of doctrinaire story of, of religion than it did about the identity that was associated with it. So the that is, is is a you know a great question, and it's one that <coughs> that I've looked at in the past. The three three different stories given for why we, we see difference in these these communities, 
You know, one of them, the I highlighted, which is that it's the, the difference in the units themselves, that some are, are more professional than others. And certainly the, the story behind this, the 7th Muslim Brigade is not just that they're a different unit, but that it's formed largely out of, of young men who have been ethnically cleansed out of, of other places. That, that, that you know, the process of, of earlier in the war created individuals who are willing to carry out that same kind of revisit that violence on others. That to me sounds sort of like my story, which is that if collective violence is done to you, that is liable to harm the identity. Um, that's not to, to rule other things out. Another one that is given for the, particularly the, the collective nature and violence in, uh, in the Lashva Valley is that Tito, when he was facing the, the Soviet-Yugoslav split, uh, ended up wanting to put munitions factories in, in the safest part of Yugoslavia, dead center, which in this case was the Lashva Valley. For many of the, the you know, under an arms embargo, the two sides both had a, a strong incentive, the Croats and the Bosniaks, to try and get a hold of these. And that in some cases, they worried a lot about any individual being capable of, if they couldn't control it, destroying it. And then the last one that, that comes up, and I think this is the one that, that I find most interesting, is that, you know, again, this goes to, to the, the nature of Lashva Valley, is that during the Vance Owen peace discussions, maps were given to leadership on, on each side, talking about a future Bosnia that would largely be cantonized based on, on, on pre-war measured demographic identity. Some parts of it were sort of labeled TBD or you know, based on the, the majority on the ground. And the, those, maps, those maps came out you know, came out right before you end up seeing the, the Bosniak-Croat split. Right? In that case, the, the story would be that the outside, the outside peacemakers you know, operating under good intent ended up creating the very thing that they were trying to stop. Like, these are, are stories of history, and my sources are, are not, you know, these are not, not strong primary sources. This is not a, a deep, deep look into the history, but those are the three stories that I would, would say about why I think that this is, is not the case, that what you get in is what you get out. Yeah, thank you um, for sharing your research, and I guess just for the record, I, I think you're on the right track here on the ethnic uh, versus religious discussion, although we did have that yeah. longer discussion. But I, I think it actually it seems like a nice contribution to the ethnic politics literature that tries to segregate some of the um, reasons for effects of different kinds of violence. Um, okay, so my question follows a little bit on Cole's question, which is about the um, strategy of collective versus um, collective um, <laughs> violence. And one thing I was a little bit intrigued by that you said in the beginning was about the technology, that yeah. if you have um, more technology, you might, uh, if you have uh, technology that can discriminate, you might have the capacity yeah. to do collective targeting, and if you have less technology, you wouldn't. But then I was thinking, does that kind of, um, does technology and capacity actually go along with some inclination to target groups collectively? Because I was just thinking, yeah. for example, um, if you want to carry out a genocide, you would need to know who are members of different groups. So you might invest a lot in that technology yeah. of discrimination precisely to target groups collectively. Yeah. So I just wondered if you had some thoughts on the technology angle. And I guess the technology and the capacity yeah. angle and how that's yeah. associated with one or the other. I think I think it's it's very hard to come for me at least it's it's very hard to come up with a, a, a strict strict rule of that. Sometimes 
you know, so, you know, when I give the example of indiscri indiscriminate, that comes largely from, from uh, Neil Sheehan, a bright and, bright and shining lie, writing about the, the Vietnam War, where one commander's interviewed and says, what this war calls for is this war calls for killing people with knives, at best guns. Not aircraft. What we need here is some discrimination, which is sort of terrifying when you think about it. But you know, it, 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 it's definitely also a story of, of will, right? The US had all the technology in the world, but ended up using it quite indiscriminately. I can imagine a, you know, a story, you know, a, a cycle in which <laughs> certain, certain cultures possessed of, of high technology end up creating, you know, that gives them certain beliefs about other groups and the, the you know, whether or not they, they should or not be, you know, how to deal with them. So, you know, the, the Germans in the early turn of the 20th century, you know, were one of the most technologically advanced societies on earth. On the other hand, they absolutely, you know, go out and commit genocide against the, the Heros in, in Southwest Africa, you know, because that technology gives them a, a sense of, of these people who should not be saved. I, I don't have a, a good one on that. I think it, it could cut either way. Marco. I, I wonder if you could speak to us about the, the social dimension of polarization. You said there's also a social polarization, but you also like it in terms of politics. Yeah. So <coughs> that is is a little bit less it's a it's a drier slide in terms of, of gathering up the the numbers. But for each of each of the towns I coded the interview, so on those those four dimensions, because it's a life life story interview. You know, as best I could, I could, could go back and say, you know, what, what did your social integration look like before the war, after the war? Who were your friends? How did you talk? And I coded interviews where on any dimension I had a four-point scale, any that if it moved more than two points in, you know, downward in interview, then it got worse. If it moved more than two points better, it got better. If it was about the same, it stayed the same. This is probably going to require, it's like an eye doctor chart, for, for most everybody. But the, the, the tale of, of, of that was out of 11 interviews in, in Community K, one person said, you know, one, based on the, the evidence from one person's interview, it appeared to get worse. In the Community F, two out of 10 saw it get worse. In T, seven out of 10 saw it get worse. And in V, nine out of nine saw it get worse. The, you know, I, I can think of a, a lot of, of different things that I would say. So. You know, when I was, was first in V, the, the slide that I showed, back here, you know, this is just a small picture. This is one panel that is approximately about 12 feet long. So each of these was about from there to there, square. Um, this is, you know, a huge memorial. On, the, the, on a dominant feature of land. There's no way to not see this you know, out there. So that, that's definitely a sign. Uh, the way people talked you know, when I was first in, first in B, somebody said, you can't see it, but over there's the line. Um, it was you know, just a sort of, again, a, a small piece of evidence. This is, you know, my sense is that the qualitative evidence is not gonna give a smoking gun story of the, but it gives a lot of different, different sort of implications we can think of. During the world, this took most of my interviews took place during the World Cup. As I think most everybody in the room knows, Croatia did pretty damn well in the World Cup. The Bosnian team did not not do as well, but in VNT, again, you know, most, mostly Croat, so were or, or F and K. 
in TNV, there are Croat flags hung everywhere. There's one apartment building where a local local magnate paid to put up, you know, to buy full-size Croat flags that are, you know, under every balcony. So I mean, it's a, a standard standard Yugoslav apartment building, you know, with a, a sort of a nice balcony outside to hang washing and to, to be outside. So I mean, a very large flag hung next to, next to, next to, next to, next to, next to. In F and K, I saw no Croat flags during, despite the fact that you know my field time was intermingled. So I'd go to like, you know, F one day, then I'd go to V the next, then I'd go to T, T after, then I'd go to K. So I mean, even when Croatia was winning games, there were not as many Croat flags out. Just a quick follow-up on that. If there's how close together are these localities? Uh, these localities are, as the crow flies, not very far at all. So they all fall into the same canton. So roughly the, the Bosnian equivalent of a state. You know, the, the municipalities, the Opština is about the size of a county. The idea was that would, when I picked these, you know, I used the matching algorithm using GIS, and I tried to get them pretty close together. So they're about 25 to, to 30 miles away as the crow flies. On the other hand, as you drive, because it's mountainous terrain, they're all approximately an hour apart from each other. So that was, was another one of the criteria, is that they're, they're close together, but they're also very separated by, by land features. I'm not saying, and I think this, this goes to, to just a different point, which is here the communal effects, I think, are, are very important, partly because the communities are somewhat isolated, or more isolated because of the geography. If this had been, say, Kansas, I don't know if we'd have seen the, the same kind of effect, because here the armed organizations and the towns themselves are sort of kept separate by the geography. I'll, I'll do them in the order you asked them. So in terms of, of, of what happened to the Yugoslavs, because you know, Yugoslavs as a, a percentage, so if I look at the, the census, people had the option of saying any of these, these, these ethnicities, what they call nationalities, which are codified in law. They also had the option of picking Yugoslav. So Yugoslav peaked, I want to say, at about in, in 1980. right? In the, the 19, 1991 census, you know, it is on its way down, but it's still, still you know, Roughly high single digits, nearly 10% of the population in Bosnia thought of themselves as Yugoslavs. What has happened with all of them is, is, is really an interesting question. So when I did the interviews in, in, <coughs> in TNV, I told you that a number of the, the people there had been, previously had been communists. You know, they had stayed in place, but had just changed their sense of what their identity was. You know, for some of them, it may be a case of, of out-migration. Looking at the, the most recent census, so there's a long gap between the, the 91 and then the next one is in 2013. You know, trying to compare, say, the number of people who call themselves Bosnians. So choices on the, the 2013 census include Bosnian, Herzegovinian, because it's Bosnian, Herzegovinian. Bosnia, let's see, Bosnia, Herz, Bosnian, Herzegovinian, Bosniak, Muslim, Serb, Croat, you know. So it's hard to, to 
to really get a sense of what happened to the Yugoslavs. I'd looked at it trying to compare, say, Yugoslav to Bosnian, and the, the numbers still don't, don't match up. There is some nostalgia that, that comes out, and that's partly why I do the, the life history approach. Because otherwise, if, if I ask, then the, the story that people tell me is, well, you have to understand, it was all great. Slobodan Milosevic and Franjo Tudjeman, terrible now, right? So by stepping them year through year, you know, I get away from that narrative that they tell outside researchers and trying to, to think about that. The last in terms of collective violence and saying that, that Yugoslavia failed, you know, I, I, it does not make me happy to say this, but I think that the evidence was that, that Yugoslavia did fail. You know, it, it's broke apart into to separate constituent, constituent nations with huge bouts of violence. For all the flaws of the UDBA, for all the flaws of, 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 of the way that Tito in, enforced communism over religion, I think it was probably a much better life for people under that than it was certainly was living under under these circumstances. So <clears throat> I was born in Belgrade in, in 1966, and I grew up in Yugoslavia. I left in 1992, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I mean, I can testify to uh, the ethnicities not being that significant among people I was growing up with in Belgrade, you know, in big cities. And one thing I would add to, you know, kind of along the lines of your question, is that when Tito died in 1981, I believe, the, the kind of a structure of power, governing structure he left behind was based on this committee consisting of representatives from each, um, each part of Yugoslavia, Serbia, Croatia, and so on. And I think you know, I was in my 20s then, and I, you know, I remember kind of gradually at that time the, the idea of thinking about who is Serbian, who is Croatian, who is Slovenian, Bosnian, and so on, becoming more and more prominent. And there was something about Tito's you know, cultural personality and the way in which the, the, the structure he left behind was based on that kind of decentralized idea that I think contributed to the uh, demise of the Yugoslav uh, identity. But I'm also interested you know, in your, all of your examples, which make sense for comparative purposes, are very small communities. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have any thought, thought on uh, whether in bigger towns, let's say 50,000 mm -hmm. or 100,000 people, the dynamics might be different because of the you know, differences in yeah. lifestyles and access to information. Mm -hmm. Uh, just to, to piggyback, thank you for the, 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 the talking about the, the makeup of the, the presidency. Because you know, that, that is an important story, especially, you know, if, if I remember correctly, Kosovo is an autonomous province, but still gets a, the same vote that Slovenia or Croatia would. And so it looks like, you know, towards the end, it, it does look like Milosevic will be able, you know, or whoever rules Serbia has a near majority of the presidency and doesn't and need much else. To go to the, the, the bigger communities, I, I think it's, for me, it, it's, it's hard to do qualitatively because just in a, in, a, in a big community, you know, so lots of people go and do research in Sarajevo. And I think, you know, in some cases maybe that works, in some cases it doesn't because Sarajevo is a big mixing, you know, people move all the time. One work that is out there compares Tuzla and Mostar. So to just give a you know a quick quick look at, at, at this just shows provinces by the change in, in percent ethnic voting. Um, you know, Tuzla and, and Mostar, Mostar is is sort of infamous as a city for for what happens during the, the Bosniak Croat civil war. So they end up destroying the bridge over the river Drina. 
and then it, it ends up being a, you know, beyond the, the, the sadness that causes to Evo Andrich fans, you know, the way that the, the war was carried out was largely collected. And we see, you know, a, a, a deep in increase here, you know, but the municipalities is largely driven by the votes that, that come out of Mostar. Tuzla largely stays the same. There's a, a book by someone who I'm going to immediately go into political candidate in a debate mode and forget the name. But there, there is a book that, that compares, compares Tuzla and Mostar. And, and again, the, the, the question and the puzzle is, is much like mine, which is, you know, Tuzla saw a lot of violence. Tuzla what ended up being the headquarters for the, the US peacekeepers when they went into 1995 as part of the Dayton Agreement. But Tuzla hangs together in terms of, of the way that the people interact across group lines in a way that Mostar does not. So it's, it's a, you know, that, that's something to look at. In terms of information, in the, the life histories, one of the things I ask people is I, I normally, you know, asked how did you get your news or did you get, take a newspaper, you know, and, and rotated that through the years. It was interesting because much of the, the work that, that I'd read before going there and looking at it emphasized the, you know, propaganda, emphasized the power of, of looking at, at state television. Yet for most of these communities, people, you know, tended to, to prioritize what they saw on a local level. So one individual remembered hearing on the radio, this is in, in Community K, they heard a, a broadcast that said that the, the Catholic Church had been shelled and was, was on fire. And they immediately quit what they were doing and, and you know, and, and went home to look and looked at the, to see that the church was not on fire and then they said to themselves, that's, you know, the, the propaganda has some limits. And I think it works best in cases where people can point to their specific, specific experiences. Time for one last question. Oh, no. Okay. Oh. So I see it, see it as, as a mix. I think that the, the, the abiding, abiding principle is from above. So, you know, at the very start of the war, the um, HCSP, the Croat Peasant Party, has their own militia in Mostar. And they're, they're willing to accept Bosnians. The, the, the argument the, the HCSP makes is, you should, we're all the same, true you're Muslim, but what we're fighting here is we're fighting against the Serbs. You really, you belong with us for safety, right? The HVO, the, the Croat Armed Forces, End up, end up supplanting that militia and removing it. Certainly thinking about what happens in, in most of the, 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 the histories, the ones that I said earlier about the Vance Owen discussions and when, when violence takes place, I see, see it largely carried out from above. But that's not to say they're not significant deviations. So the 7th Muslim Brigade is, is certainly a group that was largely out of control of the, the core commander for the area. Um, the Ochre paramilitaries were just sort of a terrifying force to be reckoned with. Many of these people end up in, in The Hague, you know, even when it does appear to be, be local, local dynamics in terms of that armed organization, you know, and I know that you know this quite well, you know, it turns out that people have links. So Archon is sort of a poster child, or Sheshe, um, you know, people who had their own militias from Serbia operating in Bosnia, which were largely licensed by, by their ties back to Milosevic. Please join me in thanking Chris. Thank you very much.